This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. If you go deep in the ocean where sunlight doesn't reach, sitting on the seabed floor are nodules that look like unassuming rocks. But those grayish clusters are actually filled with vital metals like cobalt, nickel, and copper, materials needed in the push for more electric cars. Companies and even some governments are eager to begin deep-sea mining for the metals, saying it would aid in the shift to a greener economy. Others argue this mining could wreak havoc on marine life we still know little about. Two weeks ago, international talks about regulating deep-sea mining ended without any rules set in place. So where does that leave the future of the seabed? And how harmful is the extraction of these metals? We'll get into those questions and a whole lot more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Let's welcome our guests. Joining us is Matthew Gianni. He's the co-founder and political and policy advisor at the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition. That's a non-governmental environmental group. And Daniel Ackerman is with us. He's a journalist covering climate and mining. Thanks to you both for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Daniel, geographically, where do most of these metal-rich nodules form? Yeah, so the, well, the area that's received the most commercial interest from the mining industry is a part of the Pacific Ocean called the Clarion-Clipperton Zone. And so if you're imagining a map of the Pacific, think about the area between Hawaii and Mexico, this broad swath of the Pacific, um, which is about the size of India. And it's basically a large, deep, flat area And on the muddy seabed, these so-called polymetallic nodules form in really high concentrations. So in some areas, you know, it looks almost like a cobblestone street. There are just so many of these nodules that, like you said, are rich in some really important metals like nickel, cobalt, and copper. Uh, Matthew, two weeks ago, you were in Jamaica for the latest International Seabed Authority meeting. And these were much-anticipated talks over the regulation of deep-sea mining. What was the mood like? Well, the mood was quite tense in many respects, in part because a deadline of July the 9th had expired, by which time the Secretary General of the International Seabed Authority and several governments, including Nauru, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, and Norway, were arguing that the International Seabed Authority was legally obliged to adopt regulations in order to open the door to mining. But the conclusion of the meeting after much debate was no, uh, they decided not to adopt regulations in July of this year. They uh, agreed to a roadmap to consider 
uh, with a view to adopting regulations in two years' time. Uh, and in the meantime, they've basically sort of tightened, uh, but not fully closed, a loophole that would allow a company like the Metals Company to apply for a mining license on a provisional basis after the July 9, 2023 deadline. Daniel, help us understand the International Seabed Authority a bit more. What role does the ISA play? Yeah, so the ISA is essentially the global regulator of seabed mining, at least in international waters or the high seas. So the the ISA was set up by a United Nations treaty um, back in the 80s and 90s. And since then, um, the ISA has done a lot of work in granting companies exploration licenses, that is to go out, explore the deep sea to see you know, what kind of resources there, whether it's worth extracting. And now the ISA is at a point where it's their job to come up with these mining regulations that, um, that Matt referenced where, that would govern the rules of how a company should behave if they're actually going to go out and commercially exploit um, a, a deep sea resource. So a big piece of these recent talks were around a so-called two-year rule, and this was triggered by that small Pacific island of Nauru. What is that rule, Daniel? Yeah, so this is kind of where we get into the uh, the weeds of international governments here. Um, so in the treaty that set up the International Seabed Authority, there was this clause that basically said okay, if a country feels like it's ready to go out and start deep-sea mining commercially, but there are no regulations in place, that country basically has to give two years' notice and say, all right, we want to start mining in two years, or we'd like to apply for a mining permit in two years' time. And that basically sets the clock on the International Seabed Authority turbocharging its work and trying to finish up those mining regulations. And so... Just over two years ago, um, the Pacific Island nation of Nauru, in partnership with the metals company, um, made an announcement uh, to the ISA saying, hey, we'd like to begin mining um, in two years. And since then, the ISA has been working on these regulations, um, but they have, as of yet, not been finalized. So as we said, the ISA did not adopt any regulations at the end of this meeting. So Matthew, does that mean no one can mine? the ocean? Or does it just mean we won't have regulations in place if people decide to start mining the ocean? Well, it doesn't mean that no one can mine the ocean. What it does mean is that after July the 9th of this year, a company could put in an application for a provisional mining license or provisional approval of a mining license. But the big question in the, in, 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 you know, uh, before the regulations are actually adopted, but the big question in terms of the provisions of the Law of the Sea Convention that Daniel mentioned um, around this is what is a provisional license? What does that actually allow a company to do? And uh, the Council of the ISA, which is the 36-member executive uh, branch of the ISA, if you were, 36 country members, does have the right to simply uh, disapprove an application under uh, these provisional uh, uh, um, procedures uh, that would uh, kick in that have kicked in now as of uh, July the 10th. And again, big debate over whether and how the ISA would handle an application if it comes in before 2025. Uh, resulted in an agreement, unanimous, by all the 36 countries that are members of the Council of the ISA that no one should get a license before regulations are in place. 
Um, now, that's not a binding uh, agreement, but that's a pretty strong political signal that if push comes to shove and somebody does apply uh, and it goes to a vote, uh, that vote is likely to be, you know, it's likely to be a vote against uh, a country that applies on a provisional basis. So, in effect, they've kicked the can down the road a couple years. They've, con they've agreed to continue to negotiate on the regulations, but in addition, there is a growing number of countries there, uh, that, is, that is calling for a moratorium on deep-sea bed mining for a variety of reasons, uh, one of the main ones being that we just don't know enough about deep-sea ecosystems uh, and deep-sea species to be able to predict what the impacts will be. But because the scale of these mining operations will be so huge, um, the, the impacts are likely to be quite large. Um, and given the biological characteristics of deep-sea ecosystems, including the ecosystems found in this area called the Clipper, Clarion Clipperton Zone in the Eastern Pacific, um, uh, scientists are saying that the recovery of the larger animals, the so-called megafauna that are dependent on the nodules, uh, will take millions of years, may take millions of years because it will take millions of years for these nodules to reform uh, or regenerate. And even the animals living in the sediment in the areas that are mined uh, may take hundreds of thousands of years uh, to recover from the impact of mining. And so countries are starting to say, well, what's the rush? You know, if we don't even know, if we can't fully understand what the impacts will be because we don't know these ecosystems well enough to be able to, 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 to obtain that information, why do we need to hurry to start agreeing to mining before we do get that knowledge? Daniel, for countries that are still leaning toward deep sea mining, what's the benefit for them? What's the argument they're making? Well, a lot of them make the argument that, hey, we need to transition to an electrified economy as fast as possible. And that means we need to get as much of these metals and as cheaply as possible. And deep sea mining could provide a path towards that. Um, of course, countries that sponsor this type of deep sea mining also stand to gain economically. So, uh, you know, the Cook Islands, a Pacific Island nation, is, is moving forward with exploration um, for, for deep sea mining. And, you know, one argument that the Cook Islands government has made for this is, you know, hey, we're a small, low-lying island nation. We need to adapt to climate change. Rising seas, stronger storms threaten our very existence. And so getting a little revenue from, from deep sea mining could help us adapt to those changes. And what's been the response to that that tension that we're being affected by climate change, this could help move us to a greener economy more quickly. <laughs> it seems a bit of a, to be a bit of a catch-22. It is. And so for that same reason, a number of other countries have fallen on the other side of this line, um, as, as Matthew said, and have basically stated publicly, we need to hit pause here spend, you know, another 10 or 15 years just doing basic science, basic marine research to figure out what negative impacts mining might have before we move ahead with this industry. We're going to head into a quick break. When we come back, we discuss what we know and don't know about the effect of deep sea mining on marine life. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. 
Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation and add another voice. With us now is Gerard Barron. He's the CEO of The Metals Company. That's a Canadian-based deep-sea mining company. Gerard, welcome to the program. My pleasure to be with you. Gerard, talk us through the mechanics of deep-sea mining as you currently practice it. What happens during the extraction process? So we send a robot, an electric robot, that is connected to an umbilical and a riser that crawls along the seafloor and using a a hydraulic jet of water that is shot at the nodules, it uses an engineering principle known as the Kwanda effect to lift the nodules. We then separate the sediment from the nodules, uh, leaving 95% of the sediment on the seafloor. And then we use water as the vertical transport mechanism to then put them up to the production vessel. And then we offload them to a, a boat that will then move them to shore for processing into the the metals that we so badly need. So I'm going to get a, a clear picture of what this looks like. How large is the robot you you put down into the water that's connected, I'm assuming, to a ship, or is it to something more permanently um, set in the ocean? So one of the great things about ocean resources is you do not need to build any fixed infrastructure, unlike on land where you need to build roads and rail and ports. So what we do is we convert a vessel and sail it on out there. And then our, our, our first production vessel, the Hidden Gem, is around 240 meters long. And think of it as how you harvest a paddock of wheat. And so that production vessel is constantly moving. And it's attached to the electric robot on the seafloor. And, and the size of that Think of it as the size of a uh, storage shed, and our production version will be a little bit larger than that, maybe two storage sheds. Actually, one of the challenges when you add buoyancy and then put it 4,000 meters below sea level is keeping it on the seafloor. And so even though it's a reasonably large piece of equipment, it really does glide along the seafloor. And if you look at the imagery of the tracks that we leave behind, they only indent the seafloor by a couple of inches. And so it's a great uh, marvel of engineering prowess. Uh, we do that with our partner, All Seas. And our, our engineers really have focused on how can we minimize the environmental impact while also being the most efficient that we can be. And, and explain a little bit more about the mechanism of picking up these nodules, how are you getting them out of the seafloor? What, what process is at play there? Well, it's a very important fact to, to make your listeners aware of, and that is that these nodules are located in the abyssal zone. And just as a matter of reference, while the, the ocean is a very large sequester of carbon, only 2% of the carbon is stored on the seafloor. And while we disturb that sediment where that 2% is stored, 
what we found is that it, it settles again very quickly. And now one of the great things about nodules is that they lie on the ocean floor. And I often use the analogy of a golf driving range that's just filled with golf balls. So we don't have to drill or dig to get to them. So technically, it, as we think of mining, this is not mining. We're really collecting these nodules. And so, as I mentioned before, the engineering process is known as the Coander effect. And it's, it enables us to really minimize the impact. So we're not going down to churn the seafloor. We're really collecting these rocks. And that's made possible by the fact that they sit on top of the ocean floor. They're not buried inside, deep in the ocean. Matthew, for, for people who are concerned about the ecosystem, as this type of mining is currently practiced, what are the, the biggest flags they raise? Well, it's not yet uh, practiced. This is, um, this is something that uh, companies are waiting for the uh, International Seabed Authority to either green light or, or call a pause to. Uh, but basically, it's, it's, you're, you're, the, the mining would actually involve, in effect, the equivalent on land is strip mining. You're basically removing, most of the ecosystem sits on the surface of the seabed or just above the seabed. And the size of these mining operations would be, depending on the various estimates, would be anywhere from, uh, say, four to 5,000 square mile mine, strip mining operations over the course of a 30-year licensing period. And scientists have estimated that another five to 15,000 square miles of seabed would be kind of inundated with sediment uh, to the detriment of uh, animals living in the areas that either filter feed or, um, you know, are using respiratory apparatuses to filter oxygen out of the water. In other words, you'd smother or choke these animals to death. About half of the animals that live on that seabed in the uh, Clarion-Clipperton zone in the Eastern Pacific are so-called nodule obligate species. In other words, they depend on the existence of those nodules for some portion of their life history. And when you remove the nodules, you remove uh, an essential component of the ecosystem without which they cannot survive. And so it's the scale of these mining operations. But beyond that, there is the discharge of the sediment, wastewater, and small particles of the nodules from the collector ships on the surface back into the water that is also cause for concern. And the discharge that the metals company is planning, the, the, the depth at which it's planning to discharge is at about uh, 1,200 meters. You have another 3,000 meters or so between the discharge point and the seabed. And what the engineers from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have, have estimated is that these plumes could move, uh, uh, travel up to 800 to 900 miles in multiple directions before finally all that sediment and that discharge in wastewater settles back onto the bottom. So the spatial scale of these is huge. And when it comes to the carbon footprint, there is a real concern that in addition to potentially impacting migratory species of whales that travel through this area of the Eastern Pacific, sharks, sea turtles, tunas that are fished in this area, um, it could affect the so-called biological carbon pump um, and as you may know, the largest animal migration on the planet uh, today are the species that move from uh, the deep parts of the ocean up into the surface waters to feed at night and then back down to six, 800 or 1,000 meters depth, let's say six, uh, 12, 1,500, 2,000 feet depth. And they draw down that carbon out of the surface waters and then either defecate that, the, the, the organic material down into the deep sea or, or are in turn predated upon by animals even living further down into mm -hmm. the depths in the water column. G Gerard, th there are concerns that 
we don't know enough. We, we have some idea of how deep sea mining might disrupt the ecosystem, but we don't really know enough. So how is your company, as you plan to submit an application to the ISA next year with the hope to begin mining in 2025, how is your company accounting for that possible disruption when there isn't, isn't clarity around what it could mean? Well, to begin with, this area of the seafloor has been studied since the 1970s. And so the notion that there's not enough known about it, I think, is is incorrect. However, well, well, well the, the, the seafloor has been studied, but the effects of mining on the seafloor has not been studied. But that's where we have been driving through the investment of hundreds of millions of dollars, scientific-based evidence. And that is what we need to depend on. And and. Matt mentions uh, sediment plume, and that's a great example because if you were to listen to some NGOs, they would tell you that the sediment will travel for thousands of miles. And yet our studies, last year we were at sea for six months uh, collecting nodules as part of our pilot uh, permitting process. And whilst we were doing so, we had another boat filled with scientists and experts from some of our science partners And we had around 50 devices in the water whilst we were collecting nodules. And they were measuring sound. They were measuring how far the sediment moved one way or the other. And what we found is that the sediment only rises around two meters above the seafloor. And up to 98% of it settles again in the test area. And so the currents 4,000 meters below sea level are very different to the currents on the surface. And, and, and just for clarity, Gerard, with that, what, what you're describing, would that be at the same scale as an actual mining operation? No, but of course, what we are now doing with our expert partners is modeling that out. And so what you need to do is to understand the behavioral characteristics of the sediment plume. And then you start to scale it up and you say, well, if we uh, apply this over the 23 year, which is how long we expect to be collecting rocks on the Nori D area, which are our first application, we can then make very accurate assumptions on what will happen to that sediment. But the fact that, let's just get back to the fact that the sediment behaves very differently based on the data we have gathered compared to the speculation of what might happen. We have to depend on scientific, on evidence. I, evidence is what we have to make these decisions based on, not, not on speculation. We're talking to Gerard Barron, the CEO of The Metals Company, journalist at Daniel Ackerman, and Matthew Gianni, the co-founder of the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition. Daniel, I want to bring you back in in, in a second, but Matthew, I want to first get your response to uh, Gerard's assertion that the concerns are based on speculation and not actual fact. No, I disagree with that because some of the best science that's been done to date on the potential impacts of mining have been done by publicly funded uh, research projects involving uh, marine institutes and research institutes from across Europe and elsewhere in the world. And I'm referring, for example, to the MIDAS project funded by the European Union that ran from 2013 to 2016. I was a formal partner in that project. Uh, And then the JPI Oceans Mining Impacts 1 and 2 project, also funded by a consortium of EU member countries. And these have consistently said, as have MIT engineers using sediment um, from the Clarion-Clipperton zone, 
that in fact these plumes can be quite large. And even if only 5% of the sediment churned up on the bottom floats off site, that's still several thousands of cubic meters of sediment that are tens to hundreds to higher uh, 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 times the amount of organic material that's actually in the seabed itself. But, you know, again, the idea that the, the you know the, the, there has been studying since the 1970s, but there is a recent paper that came out that just shows how little we know about the deep sea. And this was done by Mariel Rabone and her colleagues at the Natural History Museum in London. They identified over 5,500 animals collected from this area of the Eastern Pacific in natural history museum collections, of which only 500, or about 10%, a little over 500, had actually been described. The rest are known to live there, but they have no idea what they do, how they live, how they reproduce, etc. And in addition, they estimate that there are another 6,000 or so at least to be discovered. And these are, these are actual megafauna. There are many more species down there of the smaller types of um, animals. So it's impossible to predict how the mining will impact all of these different species if we don't even know how these species live or how they interact and how they're connected. But beyond that, uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, scientists are clear that about half of the, the larger animals living in the deep sea uh, in this area are, are dependent on the nodules. And to put the words of one scientist uh, that I've worked with who was asked by his government to advise them mm -hmm. on how you minimize the impact of nodule mining uh, on the animals that live there, he said it's virtually impossible. He says it's impossible to minimize the virtual obliteration of everything living in the areas that will be directly mined. Before we head to the break, let's go to the message we got from Liz. My understanding is that the minerals that are being sought in the oceans are on the ocean floor. So I was wondering whether places in the world that used to be covered by oceans might be a source of those same minerals without damaging our existing oceans. Liz will get an answer for you when we return. We'll also talk about the countries that are for and against deep sea mining and why. Stay with us. A lot more still ahead. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's get back to the conversation. You know, Daniel, part of what we're hearing from our guests here and from our listeners is the, the question of how long it would take to understand the damage deep sea mining could cause in the long term. Do we have any clarity around that? Well, some scientists have called for about 10 or 15 years of additional study before we make any kind of decision on deep sea mining. But that is a somewhat arbitrary timeline. Of course, it depends like how much funding and attention this problem receives. 
And you know, one thing researchers do know is that things happen very slowly in the deep ocean. It's not an ecosystem that recovers quickly from a disturbance like deep sea mining. So ultimately, we may not know the extent of the damage until deep sea mining actually starts at scale and we can observe it. So you know, there's, an, there's a decision to be made about whether to allow it to begin and we'll see what happens or to follow the precautionary principle and not allow deep sea mining um, until we have, you know, another 10, 15 years of study where we might know we can control the impacts, whether through new science or through advances in the mining technology itself. Now, before the break, we got that message from Liz, who was curious about whether there are other places, areas that used to be underwater, but are now exposed. Matthew, is that a possibility? I'm not, I don't know about nodules, but certainly there are other types of, uh, of mineral resources that you can find in the deep sea that are also found on land um, in areas where the ocean floor has kind of been pushed up above the surface of the ocean with the movement of the uh, continental or tectonic plates. Uh, but, you know, let me come back to something that Dan said. The, the reality is more and more people were starting to recognize, scientists, policymakers, and so forth, that the world does not need to go into the deep sea to get the metals to transition to green economies. And the question becomes, why would we open up a whole new frontier of industrial resource extraction in a part of the planet that has remained largely untouched until now with unknown but potentially severe consequences and risks, including to the, the, the role of the oceans as a climate sink? If you can make the argument that, well, the world needs these metals, so it's a trade-off that we have to live with. Destroy part of the planet to save the rest of us on other parts of the planet. But the reality is, you know, there are uh, alternatives to mining the deep sea. As Dan has said, the metals company is primarily targeting the electric vehicle uh, manufacturing market, the, the, the battery manufacturers or the battery, uh, make, you know, the mining cobalt and nickel to, to supply battery manufacturers. But the electric vehicle uh, uh, market is moving away from cobalt uh, and, and, and uh, nickel and other high-priced metals. Um, and, you know, we're not the only ones saying that the, the, the world doesn't need to mine the deep sea to, to supply the metals we need to transition to renewable economies. This is a clear message that came from the UK Parliament in the report that they issued in 2019 that says the, vo- the, 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 the case for deep sea bed mining has not yet been made. Um, well, well I want to give the, I want to give Gerard a, a chance to to make the case, Gerard, because you are your company is um, pushing for this to go forward. What's the argument you make for why this is necessary? Well, we live in an, on an integrated planet, and so the biggest risk to our oceans today is global warming. And one of the major contributors to global warming, as we know, are hydrocarbons. And so we need to speed up the transition away from fossil fuels and we need to drive electric vehicles and build wind turbines and solar panels. But there's also another demand driver, and that's the industrialization of the developing world. And what Matt fails to acknowledge here is that land-based mining has a tremendous environmental imprint because There is a growth in alternative battery technologies, but while there is more LFP, as was discussed, the growth in nickel 
has been still 20% per annum. And unfortunately, all of the growth in that nickel is coming from rainforest nickel. Now, the problem with that is that to get to it, you need to push out the indigenous people who are currently living amongst those rainforests. You need to remove the rainforest to get to the metal-bearing ore. And then when you process it, a lot of the waste material ends up in rivers and in the ocean itself. And so... We, don't live, we can't live in a bubble here and pretend that the deep ocean is this pristine area that isn't being touched. It's being touched every day by global warming. And so I think what we have to do is to look at trade-offs here. We have to say, what are the environmental costs of the metals that we are sourcing today and the human costs of producing those metals as well? And then where can we get a supply with the lightest touch and and the abyssal zone where there are no communities Uh and there are no plants and the amount of biomass as a measurement is around 10 grams per square meter and 70 to 80 percent of that is bacteria living amongst the sediment and we don't purport there is no impact we know there is an impact, but there's just a whole lot less impact than the alternative. Matthew, we've talked about the environmental effects, but what kind of effects could this have on island nations or other populations where this mining could take place? Well, if you're talking about terrestrial mining versus deep sea bed mining, I mean, I would just cite uh, the metals company's own life cycle analysis report published in April of 2020, which basically says, and I'm reading from it, quoting here, it is difficult to say with certainty that biodiversity and species impacts from deep sea nodule collection would be less significant than those observed and measured on land. And they say this for two reasons. Number one, we don't know enough about the deep sea to make a comparison with land-based mining. Number two, land-based mining comes in all different varieties of, of ecosystems and regulatory structures. And number three, the longevity of the impacts is likely to be far in excess of the longevity of the impacts on land. That's the environmental impacts. When it comes to island nations and others, you know, there's a real concern even about some of the from the island nations that are sponsoring uh, the metals company that they may be impacted by the mining in international waters uh, uh, in terms of impacts within their own waters to fish species, to deep sea ecosystems, shallow water ecosystems. Kiribati, for example, which is one of the companies countries that sponsors um, the metals company said this very the very same thing uh, at the meeting of the International Seabed Authority uh, in, uh, in July just last month so and 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 you know to assume that all terrestrial mining involves every everybody working in the land-based mining industry is either a slave uh, or it's children or environmental destruction. I mean, it's kind of painting the whole industry with one broad brush. And the reality is that in some cases, terrestrial mining uh, does pay good wages, brings jobs to rural communities, uh, you know, uh, I, I w- funds local communities mm-hmm. and so forth. We have just about a minute left here, Daniel. And I want to turn to you because last year, companies including Google, BMW, and Samsung supported a moratorium on deep-sea mining uh, to conduct more research on the possible effects and risks. What is the likelihood, because this is an expensive endeavor, Gerard's mentioned some numbers, what's the likelihood that companies are poised to invest in these these, uh, endeavors? Well, that's still somewhat uncertain. There there have been, like you mentioned, a number of buyers of these metals, including not only Google and Samsung, but car makers as well, uh, like Volkswagen and BMW, Volvo, who have said they will not use metals from the deep sea because of these uncertain environmental impacts. But at the same time, you know, we do see companies and governments around the world 
investing in deep sea mining. Um, you know, these are places like China and Russia, as well as you know more democratic nations like Norway and Japan. So you know, it, it it could happen, and we just need to keep our eye on whether the International Seabed Authority can complete these regulations in the next year or two. That's Daniel Ackerman. He's a journalist covering climate and mining. Also with us was Gerard Barron. He's the CEO and chairman of the Metals Company. And Matthew Gianni, the co-founder and political and policy advisor at the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition. Thank you all for your time today. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Macmillan Audio. One of the most thought-provoking books about the Middle East, Thomas L. Friedman's From Beirut to Jerusalem, is now available as an unabridged audiobook featuring a new preface read by the author. Find it wherever audiobooks are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.